This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to a Business Radio special from the 2019 Wharton People Analytics Conference. Here again, Cade Massey. Hello and welcome back. This is a Business Radio special presentation from the 2019 Wharton People Analytics Conference. I'm your host, Cade Massey. I'm also co-host of Wharton Moneyball here on the channel and a faculty co-director of Wharton People Analytics. We are on the floor of the conference. Joined in the next 15 minutes, delighted to welcome Stephanie Tignor. Stephanie is a people scientist and analytics lead at Humu. We'll hear more about Humu and what that is. But Stephanie, thank you for joining us, stepping away from the program. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. We're glad to have you at the conference. Stephanie presented, she was one of our first presentations yesterday, one in the first, the very first section, and that wasn't an accident. We wanted to throw some excitement out there up front. We heard from Stephanie about Humu. Humu is a new company doing some really interesting work. In some ways, they are the biggest venture out there on how can we take the the best of technology in people analytics, the best of social science in people analytics, and apply that in a way that helps organizations and people. That's kind of the way I think about Humu, and I think it's one of the reasons people are excited about Humu. Can you give us um, a little background on what the organization is? But, you know, in fact, let's first get background on you, because it's not like you were born working for a new venture in the Bay Area. Correct, yeah. So I used to be a professor at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, and there I was teaching consumer psychology and researching how personality and emotions can be used to predict behavior. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, I obtained my PhD also at Northeastern studying social and personality psychology. Mm-hmm. So very strong academic background. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a question real quickly? This is kind of the, the nature of what we do here at this conference. How well can we predict behavior from personality and emotions? You said that's what you teach in research. Like, how, what, how would you summarize how well we can do with that? You know, unfortunately, not well enough. Mm-hmm. We're getting there. And definitely the power comes when you use both. I can definitely mm-hmm. say that. So individually just looking at traits or individually just looking at emotional states, things like fear and anger, those will give you some power. I've found that when you combine them, you get much more. Mm-hmm. Is it, do you think it's safe to say that one of the troubles is that it's not just that we're, we're not great at predicting with those inputs, but that we think we are? We've got this kind of intrinsic belief that we can read someone immediately and therefore extrapolate, and we can understand the consequence of certain emotions. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. And my my grad school advisor, Randy Colvin, studied did a lot of work studying the good judge of personality, he called it, mm-hmm. and he found that it's actually a skill, and there are only a subset of individuals who are really effective judges of personality, and mm-hmm. so people may think they are, most mm-hmm. people think they are, mm-hmm. uh, but in fact, there's a unique special subset of individuals who really have this capability above and beyond. And how big is that subset? Are we talking a third, a tenth, a fifth? I believe, I can't, don't quote me on the percentages, I can't remember exactly, but it's definitely smaller than you would think. Okay, okay, this is a little sobering. All right, so that's your background, and you're teaching at Northeastern, and then you jump somehow from that, which, by the way, is in a different part of the country, to Mountain View, California, to work for Hulu. How did that transition take place? Yeah, absolutely. So I had been following Laszlo Bach, our CEO, for a while, and was really excited about his new venture. And I had this unique opportunity. Someone I had worked with previously uh, invited me to come out and meet the founders and see what it was about right at the very beginning. And Mm -hmm. I had dabbled in leaving academia. I had thought about it, but there were aspects of academia that I really loved, Mm -hmm. the exploration, the research, pushing a field forward. And so 
I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit nervous. Mm -hmm. And then I met the co-founders and I just thought, this is such a unique and amazing opportunity to take the things that I love, research and advancing knowledge, and apply it to a product that could potentially see millions and millions of people and help make their lives better every single day. So I took the leap. Okay, pretty compelling. <laughs> Tell us more about what that product is. So Humu was kind of in stealth mode for a while. They weren't very public about their efforts, building out the capabilities. But now you're talking about it. Now you have a track record. You're building a track record with companies. And you're growing. You were What employee number were you? Is that an okay question to ask? Yeah, I believe I was number seven. Okay, and now, like and now you're 50. So two years later, yeah. you guys have grown to 50. You just changed. You just moved office space. What is Hulu doing exactly? What is the product or service? Well, first of all, I will say it is absolutely thrilling to be able to talk about this publicly. Because yeah, as right. you mentioned, we were in stealth mode. And I was always terrified I was going to be the one that ruined it and spilled <laughs> the beans too soon. So... It's great to be able to talk so freely. Um, so Humu is a behavioral change company that's building happier and healthier, more productive employees and organizations through the power of nudges. And so specifically what we do is we go into organizations and we offer an employee diagnostic, a survey, and we see what's happening within the organization. We get the voices of employees. We combine that information with HR data. So think things like promotion and tenure and manager status. Mm -hmm. And together for each individual team within that organization, we serve up what are the most important priorities that they should be working on to build a stronger and happier culture. So I'm assuming that that is then a blend of the data that you gathered in the firm with hypotheses and theory you guys know about successful organizations and healthy people. Is that right? You've got kind of a library in your head of things that drive successful organizations and healthy individuals. You collect data on a firm and say, okay, these things are clicking, these things aren't clicking, these are holes they might address. Is that kind of the way to think about exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. So everything that we measure within every organization, the research has shown and we've validated in our own work to be super important and predictive of things like happiness and retention and productivity at work. Now, what's interesting is that we've found that the things that matter at one organization are not necessarily the things that matter in another organization. So the things that are super impactful and are really driving the behaviors that people care about culturally for one group may be totally different in another group. And so that's why it's so important to combine all these signals together and do it uniquely for every organization. It's interesting you say that because when Laszlo Bach, the co-founder here of Humu, was running people operations at Google for 10 years or whatever it was, those guys were pretty intent on, you know, whatever research might say, they wanted to replicate it inside, or at least test it inside their firm before they really acted on it. They wanted to be know for sure that it worked. And what you're saying is that's because, in fact, what works in organizations varies across organizations. depends on other factors. All right, so very useful. All right, so then what do you do with this information? Because, you know, there are a lot of folks out there selling insight about organizations, and there are plenty of folks who would be happy to run an assessment and tell you what you're missing. Absolutely, yeah. And that gets to the most important part of our product, and that's the nudge engine. So we take that information. We take information about you as an employee, that descriptive, that demographic information. We marry it, things like manager status, things like tenure. Marry it with how you feel about work on a daily basis. And together, we use that information to serve up nudges unique to you that can help you act on the things that are the top priority for you to improve upon culturally. So what do you, what do you mean by nudge? How do you guys define a nudge? Great question. So... 
typically they're, you can think of them as just small reminders in the workplace each day. And so an example might be an email. So say we learn that you need to speak up more at work, that you know, you're not using your voice effectively in meetings. We might send you an email before a big meeting that says, here are some effective strategies to help you speak up in this meeting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how have you found employees react to these nudges and is there variance in the way they react? So if different things matter for different organizations, might it be the case that different approaches matter for different individuals within those organizations? Absolutely. And that's why our nudge engine is always growing and learning and refining to the individual. Mm-hmm. It's just like if you think about you know, on Spotify or Apple Music when you're listening to songs and you have the radios on Pandora and they show you what songs they think you might be interested in, they don't always get it 100% right. And so it's important to have those feedback loops so that we can continue to learn and evaluate and grow and provide the most relevant and important contact unique to the individual. That's interesting. Okay, so you're basically giving them a chance to like thumbs up, thumbs down each nudge after the fact? It depends on the organization, but we do collect those feedback loops. Absolutely. Some people, you know, chafe, they've chafed early days technology by only giving the choice of thumbs up or thumbs down. So what's the range of feedback options you typically elicit from people? So it really varies by organization. So I can't go into specifics on that, unfortunately. (laughs) All right. But we can ask about things like behavior and feelings and um, attitudes. Okay. Okay, and that I mean, that seems terrifically important. I hadn't heard about that element of it. And so yeah. presumably you're learning not just about how this particular woman who's running this organization feels about nudges, but you're aggregating that. And so you're learning, you're learning about similar people in other organizations. And so the collective learning would be more powerful than any one organization. Exactly. So what's behind this is, this is powerful idea, powerful concept. There sounds like there must be a lot of work underneath it. And I know that there's the social science piece, and that's something that you bring to the organization because you're trained in social science. There must be a big technology piece. What does the technology part of the firm look like? Yeah, so we have uh, two branches of our organization that work really closely with one another, and that's the people science team, which is my team. So we're domain experts thinking about how people behave at work, emotions and behavior. We have a behavioral economist. um, We have a cognitive neuroscientist. We have people who are experts in organizational industrial psychology. And then on the other side, we have the engineering side of the firm, and these are people who are used to building technology and building it for scale. Mm -hmm. And so our parts of the organization have to work together so closely if we really want this thing to work. Mm -hmm. And I've had such exciting and unique collaborations with those people because we're approaching the same problem, but we often have completely different lenses when we're approaching it. Mm -hmm. And what always results is something far better than any individual could have created. If you can handle it, right? If you can handle that tension, that disagreement. So that raises an interesting question about how does to what extent does Humu you know consume their own product so do you guys have a nudge system within Humu absolutely yeah I get nudges myself well okay so tell me as a user of these things now we're not talking about you as a you know as a as employee six but you as a user of these these organizational related nudges what has been your experience Oh, I love them. So I'll give you a concrete example. The other day I was walking into a one-on-one with my manager. And right before I walked in, I got an email that said, we've been working on giving each other feedback and uh, asking for feedback. And so right before walking into this meeting, I got an email that gave me two really effective strategies of how I could ask for better feedback in the meeting. And I implemented it. It worked great. What's an example of one of these strategies? So this is a good general tip for people. 
Yeah, so one of the things that you can do, um, this is really about, I guess, receiving feedback, but one of the things that we recommend is writing down critical feedback if you receive it, and so then you can save it for later. So mm -hmm. it can be really difficult to process in the moment. We know mm -hmm. that can be an emotionally charged event for people, mm -hmm. and you might miss some crucial details that actually could be really helpful for you. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. writing down that critical feedback, revisiting it a little bit later. When I was an academic, I used to do the same thing with reviews of my papers, <laughs> right. getting the right. feedback and then setting it aside and looking at it a week later, yeah. we found can be really effective. Good, 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 good. All right, so last question. What have you learned as you move from academia into industry? This conference is very much a blend of academics and industry, and we philosophically want that blend. We want both academics and practitioners on the stage together because we believe in the value that comes out of that. What have you learned have you, as you've made that transition? I know you'd worked a little bit in industry before, but you were in the ivory tower in Boston and now you're in you know Silicon Valley so what's something you've learned from that transition I would say one of the big things that I've learned is that it's working at a startup is actually remarkably similar to working in academia because there's so much left uncovered and undiscovered at a startup you know you're starting from the ground you're building something that the world has never seen before and so it's so important to understand deeply how it works the mechanisms behind it the drivers behind it which is almost identical to what I used to do in academic research. And so mm -hmm. I really expected it to be a completely different world. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I'm finding them to be more similar than I ever would have expected. Fascinating. All right. Listen, Stephanie, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for stepping away from the conference. Thank you again for being here at the conference. Delighted to have you. We wish the best to you and your work with Humu and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we are rolling into our last guest now. We're on the floor again of the 2019 Wharton People Analytics Conference. In the next quarter hour, we have Sebastian Wernicke. Sebastian is the chief data scientist at OneLogic. He works with over 30 interdisciplinary data scientists there, helps organizations across industries turn their vast data collections into tangible value. He is also well-known for his TED Talks and his analysis of TED Talks. Yeah. Sebastian, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Sebastian, thrilled to have you. You were on the stage yesterday. You gave a very well-received presentation on what makes a good TED Talk. Yes. And you told us that we, we, we know that you had this talk years ago on what makes a good TED Talk when, mm. TED, when people were just, the TED Talks were kind of blowing up. You took this occasion to revisit that and you did a 10th anniversary, 10th year anniversary yes, that's right. of what makes a great TED Talk. Can you share with us a little bit of what you learned in that analysis? Well, so there's two parts of the presentation. I think some of the analysis is more serious than the other parts. Um, in the serious parts, I think you really learn that TED has very much shifted the topics that uh, they publish. So, so it's shifted much more towards topics that you um, easily can make an emotional connection with, right? So it's about psychology, it's about personal relationships, um, awesome science, those sorts of things. And it used to be more um, that, that you just had a higher share of talks that were just funny or jaw-dropping or, you know, just, just a short uh, idea. And that's shifted really a lot. So I want to hear more, but let me jump on yeah. that real quickly. The, this isn't necessarily your line of work, but isn't that interesting? I mean, it's not, it's not like the... I'm guessing the organizers, this is a relatively decentralized thing, and the organizers aren't driving the topic choice philosophically so much as it's emerging over time. Well, they're curating all the talks that they really choose to feature. And so it seems like they're optimizing their curation more for those talks where they think they'll just get a large audience or that are 
generally more pleasing, I would say. So, okay. so if you look at the earlier talks, they tend to be, in my mind, at least a bit more edgy, and they have a wider variety of topics. And it just feels like the the usual course that the internet is taking, right? So you're sort of trying to optimize what you're publishing for what you think the the audience will like. Well, it's more than what you think, right? Because they yep. get to, they're looking at metrics probably very closely. Oh, very much you, so, I assume. Yes. You told us yesterday that they collect feedback from viewers on many dimensions, pro yes. and con. So can you describe that real quickly? Yes. So instead of the usual thumbs up, thumbs down that you would get on a normal website, they have a system of 14 different types of ratings. So there's nine positive ratings. And you can't just say, I like this talk. You have to say, I like it because it's ingenious, because it's funny, it's courageous. Mm-hmm. Or I don't like it because it's long-winded, it's obnoxious, or it's just okay. It's a colorful range of reactions. Yes, it makes it much more interesting because now you know why do people like the talk or don't like it. And so you can go much deeper into the analysis and not just say, oh, this is a talk that people like, but why, why do they like it? And if you figure out why they like it, they also have different reactions to that. Yeah. So if there's a, the talks that they will email around, those that they will select as, as their most favorite, that depends on why they like one, right? They will favorite a talk that they find funny, for example, okay. and they will send around a talk that they find courageous. So oh. it's much deeper into, into the engagement of the audience and why, why they do what they do. And okay. that's I think unique about this data set also. Okay. So there are kind of two interesting directions to go and you're really about what 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 drives the rating. So what's the consumer experience essentially? Mm-hmm. It is interesting why these things have evolved, the the pattern has evolved over time because one of the strongest results in your data is just move from more varied and more edgy to more emotional. Yeah, but I, I think that parallels how the TED has been developing. It used to start as a tiny conference in California where essentially just people met and shared interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And since then, it has become almost like a media company. So if you look at, there just used to be TED essentially 10 years ago. And now you look at how many TED brands there are out there. I think I had that slide with like 20 different icons. You know, mm-hmm. they have TED India, they have uh, TED Women, they have TED X, they have... Mm-hmm the TED Archive. They have the show with Adam Grant, of course. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just a very, very big brand and they're rolling it out um, into all these different media and so I just think they have to optimize for that. Mm-hmm. They can't just say, let's have a nice conference where everybody's having fun. Mm-hmm. They need to think about what will be well-received and how do they get the views. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you dug into these data, what most surprised you about them? While the talks have becoming shorter, which you would think, you know, more people would watch shorter talks or they would become more engaged with and them. By the way, so you, you reported the average length was something like 13 minutes, and that's down from what? You say they're, they're So it started short. at around 18, and now it's down to like 11 minutes. Okay. So, so like a third down. Okay. Right? And nevertheless, like the number, the average number of views that the talks receive has, has been going down, the audience engagement, which you can measure by something like how many people are willing to translate a talk into different language, that has been going down. Mm-hmm. So I thought as it would become bigger, um, also these, these view and engagement numbers would actually at least stay steady or, or go up. And um, it surprised me that they've gone down so dramatically. So th- that, is that just because of the competition in the world for entertainment? And, you know, Ted, and actually Ted kind of, you know, this is how it goes with innovation. You spawn rivals, and yes. they start eating at your market share. Yes, absolutely. And, and also, it's, it's not that unique anymore, like right. you say, right? So uh, a speaker giving it, – it used to be a speaker gave a talk at TED. That's why it was called a TED Talk, right? right? And now speakers are giving their talk, of course, in multiple venues. It's published in multiple you, – yeah, You gave a Wharton People Analytics talk yesterday. It yeah, wasn't, it wasn't it, a TED Talk. It was a Wharton People Analytics it talk. It felt like a TED Talk. It was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, but no. <laughs> We basically asked you to give a kind of TED Talk. I mean, yeah, we, you did. We used that shorthand, <laughs> absolutely. Um, um, so you give TED Talks. 
Yeah. So, and, and you give talks, obviously. In what way do you present differently now because of the analyses you've run of what makes effective presentation? I think it's a lot of little details that, that I adjusted. So, for example, one of the an, uh, results turned out that I should say I more than I say you, which I think is kind of counterintuitive because you always learn in class, you know, you should talk about the audience probably. Mm -hmm. And I really try to make these my, minor adjustments, let's mm -hmm. say. Um, so real, I want to hear more of those, but just to make this one plain, you presented yesterday a list of phrases, I phrases, that mm -hmm. showed up on positive rated presentations and a list yeah. of you phrases that show up on less positive. Yes. Phrases. So this is a pretty key distinction that you find in the data. Yeah. The, do people want, what do they, people want to be listening to an expert? Do people want the confidence that comes? Because we, yes. might, we often challenge leaders to not be so narcissistic in their talks and in their writing. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are studies of actually coding leaders for narcissism by looking at how much first person they put into you know, the letters <laughs> they put in their annual reports, for example. So what's the difference there? I think it's, there's different ways that I can talk about myself. And I think there's a way where, of course, I'm, I'm just you know, being excited about myself. That's not going to be good for the audience. But of course, if you put an expert on the stage, you want to hear their perspective, mm -hmm. what they are thinking. And I think if you use too many you phrases, it becomes a bit more generic, right? It's, mm. it's, it's, it's almost safer to always use these you phrases about the audience and what they should be thinking, what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. But if I talk about myself, I, I, I can get personal. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what people want to hear and, okay. and, and see, I think. Okay. All right. So this is one way in which you've tried to add a little thing. So one, you're saying, well, it's not a big thing I've restructured. It's that I, there's lots of little details that I've yes. picked up, and I think I can refine my presentations in that direction. Yes. I versus you is one of them. Can you give us another? Well, the other one, a sentence that sticks out is people telling stories about themselves when they were young. I mm -hmm. found that very interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, another one is that, um, uh, how, how, how to put this? So any phrase where the, the speaker says, I have done something, look at what I've, I've done, I've thought about this. Mm -hmm. is much more higher rated than when you say, well, you as an audience, if you think about this, here's, here's what you do, right? Yeah. So you have to do the thinking as a speaker. You have to put a perspective into your talk. And okay. you can't just be this general, uh, general okay, here's, here's some perspectives on things. Okay. No, you have to say, here's my perspective. Okay. You have to put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. So interesting. So the, the, the second one you mentioned there was tell them, tell them a story about when you were younger. Yeah. What is there? Is that the actual thing that you think matters, or is there something general there? And if that is the actual thing, why would that matter so much? I think that's one way to get very personal, right? And and tell a story about yourself. So so, it's, I mean, of course, then I, I went in a bit into the crazy area of analyzing what is the optimum age that you should talk about right. um, when I was twelve or thirteen. Of course, that's that's just for fun. Yeah. But I think there's a point of truth if if you say if you start out with a story about how you were young, mm -hmm. you're automatically in a personal mode. I mean, there's no mm -hmm. way you can. And I also think that's not narcissistic. Um, it's it's you know it's it's a different version of yourself mm -hmm. unless you're a thirteen year old speaker on the stage, which mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. um, and then it gets very interesting. Mm -hmm. So something between that and the I versus you, a, a yeah. theme here is vulnerability, Absolutely. personalization, yes. that kind of thing. Yes, be vulnerable and talk about a topic that people can make an emotional connection with. Mm -hmm. That's always going to be um, 
have a high chance of getting a good rating. Mm -hmm. How do you think about humor in presentations? You were quite funny yesterday, and um, most everyone recognizes, look, a little humor is good. A lot of folks, when I talk about persuasion with my students, for example, they're like, yeah, but not everyone's funny. And if you're not funny, you try to be funny. It really screws things up. So how do you think about humor in presentations? I, I think there's not enough humor in presentations generally, but also, I mean, from experience, I know that humor is hard. So it's, it's essentially, I mean, if, if I look how I created that presentation, every single joke in there is like 10 iterations, 20 iterations, 30 iterations until you get it just right. The slide yeah. has to be in the right order. There has to be the right timing. You, the topic has to work. It can't be, you know, it has to be edgy. It can't be too offensive. Okay. It's just a huge amount of work. It's much easier to do a talk that's not funny. So Jerry Seinfeld would definitely agree. He, he talks about the fact yes. that you think that this, I'm talking about nothing, but you can't imagine the polish that we put on these things. Yes, like in the documentary that he did, right? Yes, and, yes. and then he says, it's just crazy amount of work. You have to test out your materials. Mm -hmm. Most of it will bomb. Then you do it again. <laughs> and of course, I couldn't test out this talk um, you right. know, in, in comedy clubs or anything, but um, still just huge amount of work to get everything just right. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I think um, in this time, you know, where presentations are essentially a dime a dozen, you probably, w what presentation is even worth putting in all that effort anymore? Okay. It's not even a TED Talk, apparently, according to the, to the numbers and statistics. Right. So, so why, why you and why TED Talks? How did this thing get started and what else do you do with your life? Because we know this is just a, this is basically a little side. This, this is well, it's it's not little anymore. My wife would say at least. So I <laughs> spend way too much time with this hobby. Mm -hmm. um, she's telling me, um, I do data analytics all of the time. So so I'm I'm chief data scientist at a company that specializes on data science on getting value out of data, and so anything that's data will fascinate me. And I think the TED talks, just I mean, it turned out that this is actually one of the most interesting data sets that I've worked with because mm -hmm. it's so rich. It has all the transcripts, it has translations, it has user ratings on this very complex scale, mm -hmm. um, it has lots of viewers, uh, it, has, it has lots of comments. So, And I also have the feeling that public speaking is actually one of those areas where probably there's not enough data-driven research yet yes. going into there, right. right? You have all of these gurus uh, sort of telling you the anecdotes. Here are mm -hmm. seven things you need to do. Here's five things TED speakers do differently. Right. And, but there's data. So, so why not look at that and right. actually see what's the reality mm -hmm. of that? Mm -hmm. You say that this is one of the best data sets you've ever played with, but you must like some other data sets. So what's another, other, another example of your work analysis? <laughs> so one, one of the data sets I, I really like, so we do, as, at my company, we do a lot of work in retail. Mm -hmm. And so essentially, we know all of the product sales across, across Germany and, and some other European countries. So mm -hmm. looking at those data sets in detail is, is really, really fascinating because it tells you a lot about the habits of people. And of course, there's the um, n absolutely obvious stuff like, you know, nobody will ever, you know, the, the use of toilet paper won't, won't vary much over, mm -hmm. over the seasons. But then there's all these little details if you really try to forecast how much a product will sell mm -hmm. and what goes into that and what mm -hmm. drives those decisions. It's individual decisions of what people will buy. Mm -hmm. But then again, there's, there's this aggregate whole right. country um, movement happening. And, and that's just fascinating because you can get observe people mm -hmm. um, what, what, what they're doing and mm -hmm. what they're shopping. And How long have you been doing this kind of analysis, working in analytics? I've been working in analytics for over 10 years now. So I started out as a bioinformatician doing genetic data sets. And now it's everything, retail, industry, um, financial services, you name it. Mm -hmm. How are you better? How are you different? And how are you better as an analyst now than when you first started? I think what I learned is that actually the analysis and the technicality of the analysis, which is what got me into there, that I was fascinated by the algorithms and the models, 
actually doesn't matter as much as you would like to think because it's become very easy to apply a model to a data set. Mm -hmm. It's much more about actually understanding what the client really needs. And this is often very different from what they tell you they need. And then get it all the way so that somebody will make a different decision. Mm -hmm. Because most of the time when we talk about data, we just talk about insights, right? Let's get the insight out of the data set. And nothing is earned with that. Mm -hmm. An insight has never made anybody any money. So you need to take that insight and now get people to trust that insight and act differently because a computer tells them to. So we're at the end of our time with you, but I, I want to understand how you think about that, that getting that trust. Like, What's one thing you have learned to do to translate an insight into a decision? That sometimes I need to use an algorithm that's not the mathematically best one, um, but it's super easy, and because people look at it and say it's easy, I understand it, mm -hmm. they will actually trust it. So I don't need to optimize for the last percentage. I need to optimize for understanding and trust. Mm -hmm. All right. Sebastian, really appreciate your sitting down with us. Thank you appreciate for having me. That was Sebastian Wernicke, chief data scientist at OneLogic. He's well-known for his TED Talks and his analysis of TED Talks. He's got a 10th anniversary edition coming out. Keep an eye out for it. I am Cade Massey. This has been a business radio special presentation from the floor of the 2019 Wharton People Analytics Conference. If you missed any of the program, please do check it out on the SiriusXM app. Until next year, I would like to thank all of our guests and our producer and our tech folks and all the support we receive. Thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.